0: Jimi Hendrix there. Yeah. A little bit of Voodoo Child. I think that's quite enough of Voodoo Child for one morning.
1: Yes, well, we're playing that because it's featured in this week's cult film, which we will get to in
0: a little bit, in due course. But yes,
1: but let's start off as we always do with the UK's top ten films,
0: and at number ten we have Ned's, which is a kind of interesting coming-of-age gangster film. It's kind of kid adulthood meets Gregory girl with little bits of a Clockwork Orange, although we should obviously invoke Clockwork Orange at our peril because that is an extraordinary film. I think the central performance by Conor McCarran is the most remarkable thing in it, and it, it's perfectly fine. It's a good low-budget British coming-of-age film. It's but good to say making
1: the top ten because it's something a lot of these films that get a little bit of hype and like you read reviews on something that don't actually
0: break the top ten because of films there's a lot of dross in this top 10, shall we say? Yeah, I'm just glad <laughs> that the remake of I Spit on Your Grave hasn't got anywhere near it. And yeah, I think that's good for all of us. Yeah,
1: that's, I suppose that's a tough one to market, isn't it? As
0: we went through the plot last week. Uh, yeah, I mean, have you seen the posters for I Spit on Your Grave, which yes. is that woman's backside in what looks like a, you know, the, kind of, the cave woman outfit that Raquel Welsh wore in yeah, A Million it, Years BC?
1: Yeah, that kind of just says it all, doesn't it? Yes.
0: <laughs> it is completely Neanderthal in more ways than one. At number nine, we have Harry Potter
1: and Deathly Hallows Part One. It's or-
0: still there. It, it was
1: V7A. I suppose it's, uh, there's a lot of films which are still in the top ten from before Christmas aren't there? That's, yes. It's I don't know whether there's a saying that there's not much being released or that, that... Well that's not true because the last week
0: we had what, nine releases to true, get through. So. But
1: I suppose maybe... It's, the films that we released, we
0: reviewed last week, aren't as good as Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> mm, yes. There are a few <laughs> but, things that are good as the Tad version of Gulliver's of Travels. But yeah, no, uh, I mean,
1: Harry Potter, I'm going to just jump my head. That the, I'm going to f- uh, completely rip off Mark Kermode and uh, Simon uh, Mayo's show there, but I,
0: we do that most weeks anyway. But we're, <laughs> yes. we're one of the one we're of the essentially listen- stand, this is no <laughs> es- essentially an no, an allegorical stand-in for it, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. Someone just referred to that film as Harry on camping and i just thought brilliant <laughs> yeah it is pretty i mean the thing we're still due to get part two in july and there is some question about whether it's going to be released in uh, 2d only or whether they are going to retrofit the second part and put two of them together in the same way as you know when the Lord of the Rings films were coming out, you'd, you'd have to wait till August or September for the DVD, yeah. so that you could spend three months rewatching it to kind of get yourself in the mood for the second and third ones. Like I said, I like the central performances, and I don't have any problem with it taking so much money I mean, like live. Because I'd rather that stuff like this was still hanging around than um, some of the new horror films that were coming out with, were of sneaking into the top 10
1: yeah there's there was, there's a few negative reviews in that the, the acting of it the, because the, the three main characters they've always the, the spotlight's always been on how good the acting ability has been because in the first few films it's a little bit ropey then they got really good and apparently they've it's gone a little bit backwards i don't know if that's maybe because i've been asked more of them from the plot that it's just uh i don't know and you, you would hope that it would be getting better yeah there is
0: <laughs> there, have, you done, have you seen uh, the facebook group playing got your nose with voldemort <laughs> which it's it's, it's a, a it's a kind of um facebook uh, group with lots of satirical cartoons about harry potter in which um it's there's one of them which is quite funny which is a then and now between uh, ron um Harry and Hermione, where it starts off with them in kind of a philosopher's stone era of just, uh, mm. uh, the boys saying to Hermione, thanks for helping us out, you can hang out. And she goes, oh, thanks, guys. And then it cuts forward to 7A, where she's, shall we say, a little bit more womanly. And it's, um, Ron and Harry kind of staring where they shouldn't be staring. And she going, I'm surrounded by idiots. <laughs> Check that out if you're a fan. <laughs> so, Michelle, at number eight, we have uh, Morning Glory. Which is surprisingly enjoyable. I mean, the trailer is funny, and it is good to see Harrison Ford and Diane Keaton back on screen with a with a pretty decent script. I mean, I think it is, in the end, broadcast news light, which we'll come on to James L. Brooks a little bit later when we talk about How Do You Know? But it's perfectly fine. Yes, speaking of things that aren't perfectly fine, yeah. though... Little fuckers at
1: number seven, Meet the Parents Three.
0: Yeah, and it's literally a one-joke film, and the joke isn't funny. There is news that De Niro, Robert De Niro, is apparently going to, as opposed to any other De Niro... (laughs) Apologise? Well, I wish he was. The news is that, well, he might be apologising insofar as he and Scorsese are going to get back together to do uh, a film called The Irishman about an, a retired hitman. But what I really want to see is a film in which Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro are put in a boxing ring and have to slog it out for the right to work with Martin Scorsese. Yeah, I'd watch that. <laughs> yeah, because, I you know, if, if you know, Rocky Balboa has anything to go by, he might not win, but, you know, the old guy who can still put on the weight, he mm-hmm. can still get in and, you know, fight off the scenery-chewing guy from Shutter Island. There was a little... I had a
1: little fear there when you said they were going to get back together, and I thought, not Shark Tale 2. <laughs> <laughs> He's not Scorsese
0: in Shark he he He's the puffer fish. Really? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I've, Marty, I've, i ruined oh, your weekend. He's, <laughs> he's lost about 20 points on my, you know, chart of estimation. But yes. Dear <laughs> me. Well, surely you were busy with other stuff. I, th- I think they thought
1: because that film was just like, let's parody anything to do with gangsters in not remotely a funny way, they thought, let's get Martin Scorsese in and he can be Robert De Niro's right-hand man and it was... Yeah,
0: the only good- the only good line in Chartel is where you have Angelina Jolie's character saying, the only thing I love more than money is revenge. (laughs) Moving on.
1: Yeah, which is probably what Jennifer Anderson said when she sees pictures of Angelina Jolie. (laughs) On her dartboard
0: at home. (laughs) (laughs) True. At number six, we have 127 hours. Which is really good. It's- it's engrossing and it's harrowing. I mean, it's not for the faint-hearted for, well, reasons which are kind of- up there in the subject matter. I mean, it's surprising that it's performed so well, considering that it is a tough subject matter with a kind of widgety appeal. I mean, like I say, in the same way as with Inception, it does look like the film that uh, the studio said to Danny Boyle, "Okay, you made us a load of money with Slumdog Millionaire. Go and do what you want." And he made this sort of independent, um, ninety-minute-long widgety film, which just happens to have got this yeah. big awards audience. It's strange because it, it's a film that you know the plot,
1: you know the ending, and it's so it's it's strange that it's. I know, it, it's not a film that you, you tend to get a lot of enjoyment out of, and if, if, if the big reveal's been made, like, he's a ghost sort of thing, then um, you wouldn't necessarily think that many people would say it. It was all a dream. <laughs> but no, it's, uh... It's, the boulder was just a pillow that had fallen on his arm while he was sleeping. Yeah, it's, uh, it's good to see that that's actually it's still hanging about in the top ten. Is it better than 48 Hours? 48 hours, what's that? The Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy
0: buddy comedy from the 1980s. I haven't seen it, but I ever since, you <laughs> know, the name Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy together doesn't bode well. And they made a sequel, another 48 hours. So if you watch that
1: and for another 40 hours, it still wouldn't add up to 127 hours. Yeah, so you're so not this getting this in, is better. You're not getting your
0: money's <laughs> worth, quantitatively speaking. Number five, it's ah gulliver's travel which Jeff is Black. rubbish he's been out of sorts for a long time and i can't stand catherine Tate. no mm-hmm. move on go back to working with richard Linklater or peter jackson no the hobbit's been delayed could you hear the news incident that the hobbit's been delayed again what's it reason now is new zealand on fire or something peter jackson has been hospitalized really? with an intestinal ulcer so they've had to put it back a couple of months there was a, a very sort of bad taste, um, not Peter Jackson bad taste, but a bad, no, bad joke uh, article basically saying, isn't it strange that when Peter Jackson's fat, he can direct three films and be perfectly healthy, and then he goes back and makes one film, and he ends up in hospital. It's, like, it's not very fair. I mean, it's, he didn't exactly want to do The Hobbit in the first place. But is it?
1: Because, you know, and um, it's maybe it's just like Samson's hair. The more lo- weight he loses, the worse <laughs> his films are getting because the lovely bones wasn't really that brilliant.
0: The Lovely Bones was an admirable failure. Because Maybe it's very hard to put heaven on screen. Right, we're gonna have to go to New Zealand through the week and film
1: full of pies. <laughs> Build up his reserves. <laughs> yeah, just take the saline drip off and put it and fill it with gravy. Oh gravy. <laughs> yes. Right, so if you listen, Peter Jackson, get fat. That's that's today's tip. <laughs> yeah, and stop working with
0: Spielberg because it's not doing you any good. <laughs> number four we have the dilemma which is rubbish and it looks <laughs> for all the world like ron howard has forgotten how to make a film that should be on the poster it's rubbish <laughs> <laughs> yes you've been warned yeah so it's uh i was looking
1: we uh, were discussing last week uh, ron howard sh- is better than this by he is the mile. i mean if you go back to the early stuff he did ed tv which is an underrated film i thought yeah. uh apollo 13 stuff like that and you just think he's got tangled in the da vinci code and um angels and demons and now this it's like what can we do yeah
0: yeah i mean also you know stuff like beautiful mind and splash i mean he is a very good kind of varied director who can do you know comedy light drama even science fiction to some extent with it i mean what i think one of his best films is um a comedy he made for roger Corman called grand theft auto which is like a heist film but done with jokes and it's really good fun mm-hmm. Um but yeah he j- he just needs to kind of get back on track and I, you know he needs to work with Tom Hanks again basically because they were really you know good together in Apollo 13 and, and they seem to have a very good relationship and he is a good filmmaker but just don't don't do this sort of thing Ron you're better than this. Yes. And number 3 we have the Green Hornet I'll defer to you because you saw it on Tuesday.
1: Yeah so it's um it's like a, it's a seven out of ten type film. It's much better than I anticipated because uh, last a few weeks ago we discussed the film and we weren't expecting great things from it. Um, interesting comment following up on Gulliver's travel when we came up. My mate said to us, he goes, he goes, uh, Seth Rogen. He's it's good to see him being Jack Black because somebody should be <laughs> <laughs> because Jack Black's career has just done nothing. But Seth Seth Rogen is basically takes the spirit of Jack Black throughout this film and is a bit of a crazy sort of lunatic type character. It's got loads of funny bits in it. Uh, it was really weird when we went to see it. Uh, there was myself and my friend, uh, me and my friend there, and the rest of the audience was, uh, like, Chinese students who obviously come to see the guy who plays Kido, who uh, won, uh, like, the Chinese version of Pop Idol. Yeah, J. Chu. And he was just, it was, the first 15 minutes he's not on screen, but when he turns up, there was, like, a buzz in the, the cinema. I was, like, I was like, oh, he's yeah. And it was, it was really weird. It just felt bizarre and then I was in. There's a joke halfway through where Seth Rogen calls himself Indiana Jones and says, you I'm Indiana Jones, and Kato, you're my short round." And like me and my mate just laughed, and I felt bad uh, for laughing because no one else did, and I thought, uh, "Is that racist?" But it don't, and it's not. But you it's because, not racist because it was just, just that because that because of who I was watching the film with. I was like, "I'm gonna like get kicked in on the way out of here," but it was just bizarre. But yeah, I recommend it if. I remember seeing it on a Tuesday night, because it's only £3 a ticket.
0: <laughs> <laughs> At certain cinema. I mean, the interesting thing that kind of popped into my head with your uh, Jack Black thing, if they ever got round to remaking The Pick of Destiny with Seth Rogen in Jack Black, who should play Carl Gass? Um, I think
1: you just shave uh, Jack Black. <laughs> He'll be, relegated Relegate, like 60, like relegate him to the
0: sidekick <laughs> You can still do the power sliding, <laughs> yeah. I suppose. Yeah, yeah This I mean, is your fault. This yeah, I mean, my problem. whole problem with Green Hornet is that it's a film directed in spite of Michel Gondry, rather than by him. There was that great quote from uh, a review in America where, basically, it said, it is not a Michel Gondry film, it is a Seth Rogen film where Michel Gondry has been held at gunpoint and asked to shout action now and again.
1: Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> definitely... It's way too long. It's, It creeps just over two hours, and that's way too long for a film of this sort. So there was a few scenes. anything with Cameron Diaz could have been... instantly. It wouldn't have affected the plot one little bit. Night and day being a typical example. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think Tom Cruise would have preferred that one. (laughs) Then it would have just been night. (laughs) So yeah, it's a good film. It's a little bit longer than it should be but it's it's, it's, it was a pleasant surprise, shall we say, like when I went to see Red last year. OK, well,
0: maybe it's a, a kind of late-night DVD thing. Yes, and number two, we have The Black Swan, which I referred to. Yeah, because I saw it on Tuesday, and I really enjoyed it, but it is, like we sort of said at the time, completely mad. I mean, imagine, if you will, the kind of jealous and ambitious elements of Palin and Pressburg's The Red Shoes, mixed in with the physical metamorphosis of The Fly, the self-reflexive lesbian sex of Mulholland Drive. That's the self-reflexive lesbian sex, if you want me to explain what that is. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, no, let's gloss over that. No, it's basically, <laughs> no, characters making love to themselves, no, but it, mixed in with the horror of Dario Argento's Suspiria and, to some extent, Terror of the Opera. It's one of those films which is, it's a full-on genre piece in the sense that if you're a fan of Dario Argento or um, David Lynch or David Cronenberg because of the connection with the fly, you will recognise a lot of the elements and it kind of chucks everything at the screen. Not all of it fits together. I mean, I think in the case of the, the kind of lesbian scenes, which are sort of an hallucination are they taking place or aren't they the film hasn't earned quite the same right to do it as david lynch did in marholland drive because those scenes come right at the end and you think by this time you could basically put an elephant on the screen and have it do nothing because i don't care because the film's too brilliant for words the thing that i would compare it to in terms of its structure is um oddly enough a film you we were talking about uh, last year which is the man who fell to earth in the sense that there are a lot of scenes in that which don't work which are indulgent which are so full-on like you know the the close-up of people um shall we say, well, urinating with fear. (laughs) But as a piece, it stays with you, and there is this, you come out of it thinking... It was full-on, but I also have this incredible sense of sadness because of what the character has gone through. I mean, in the same way as, you know, you feel sad about David Bowie basically having to live forever as a drunk on Earth because he can't die, mm-hmm. or it's implied that he can't die, in the same way as you think, well, what's going to happen to Natalie Borman? Is she dead? Is it all her imagination? And it's, it's a film which will kind of rack your brains and stay with you. But it is full-on. Do you think, you, you mentioned that maybe the, the
1: lesbian scene was a mis, misstep. Is that a problem? Because mm-hmm. that's kind of overshadowed and a lot of reviews and stuff like that that that's all people are taking from it because it's like <gasps> the girl from style Star Wars, not lesbian scene it's like it should have should they have left that out to avoid it overshadowing. Well,
0: so. I mean there like I say there are precedents for what are known as self reflexive love scenes, which is I mean if to take the comparison with Moholland Drive, the sex scene in Moholland Drive where it's um, Naomi Watts and Laura Eleanor Haring, I think, where they get it on in the last twenty minutes. The point of that scene is that it's because so much of Mulholland Drive is about the kind of fragmentation of identity and people people creating other people in their minds to satisfy their ego so that, so that scene very much fits in with the idea of well that's one version of her that's another version of her and their lovemaking is essentially saying oh how fantastic I am and then her world starts to fall apart mm. in the case of Dan Aronofsky's film Black Swan that scene comes much more you know much earlier on in the film and it's done as a much more kind of broad hallucination it comes after a club scene which seems lifted from his previous film a requiem for a dream which i still think is his best work and it it does feel much more like not that it was put in as a demographic thing, but just it didn't really gel with the rest of the narrative. But then again, of course, you, the, it's, the film keeps kind of changing gears from like a psychological thriller to an outright horror. And the final scenes when Natalie Portman is twirling around as the black swan and wings actually start growing where her arms are. And it, it's, it is completely nuts. And there are, no, anyone f- who sees it will have at least one scene where they think, well, that doesn't fit. Yeah. But as an overall piece, it works. Right. That's good. At number one, we have the King's Speech, which is great. Colin Firth is almost certainly going to win the Oscar for Best Actor. I mean, I think there's some competition from James Franco for 127 Hours, but I think he'll still win. I, I don't think, think I could live in a world where James Franco won an Oscar.
1: Neither <laughs> 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 could I. Not enough time has passed since Spider-Man Three, so
0: no, no, no. Although the remake, the remake, the reboot of Spider-Man Three with Andrew Facebook Garfield is coming out in a couple of years' time. I think it's also quite likely that Jeffrey Rush is going to win the Best Supporting Actor Oscar because, of course he won best actor for shine which was a much more sort of um cliched run-of-the-mill ham-fisted film i mean i think his performance is fine but it's not oscar worthy mm-hmm. go see it basically it's a very fine performance in a well-directed film with an interesting story indeed this is the fresh sound for the district live, live from live. this is lionheart radio
1: right that's your week's uh, top 10 now we move on to this week's cult film which is
0: Withnail and I. Yes, um and there's some confusion which we should address at the start about how the character of Withnail is pronounced because uh when the film is referred to by its director and its publicity and so forth it is Withnail but in the char- in the film the character is known as Withnall. I don't know if you spotted yeah, that. Yeah. And there is some um confusion as to why this is. I mean, um have you seen uh Young Frankenstein the Mel Brooks film? Um, Many years ago, yes. There's the the central joke in that about um, Gene Wilder's character is, I think he's he's either the great-grandson or the grandson of Dr. Frankenstein, but to avoid it, he says, no, it's Frankenstein. (laughs) And there's the whole thing about whether Withnail is... whether that's actually how you pronounce it, so it should be Wythnell and I, or -hmm. whether he's changing the pronunciation to make him sound either more or less poncy, depending on... um, In the case of Wythnell, it's probably less, but against his will. Mm -hmm. So, this is one of the films which kind of... um, is key to 80s British cinema because of its link with a company called Handmade Films. Were you familiar with Handmade Films before this? Nope. Um, it was a company created by George Harrison to fund Monty Python's Life of Brian after the original uh, company, EMI, basically got cold feet and pulled out. Because they, they got the funding to make Life of Brian in late 1978, um, after EMI in the middle of EMI's kind of financial success with The Deer Hunter. So something good came of that film. But once EMI... Let's not go there, because we've run out out of time. Um, but... After EMI saw a few of the dailies and read the script properly, you know, they got cold feet and pulled the money out. So George Harrison, who you know, ex-beatle, basically said, Look, I will front this film up front. I mean I think Terry Gilliam described it as the most expensive cinema ticket in history. And they set up this company called Handmade Films to distribute it. And after Life of Brian became a big success in spite of, you know, all the outcry in America and it being banned in certain parts of England, the company sort of continued and made some very interesting, very important, low-budget British cult films. I mean, you have stuff like uh, John Mackenzie's The Long Good Friday. Day, which really cemented the careers of Bob Hoskins and Helen Mirren. That's, that's a really great gangster film. Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits, which sort of launched his post-Python career. That took huge amounts of money in America okay. and you know, set him up for the great success of Brazil. Uh, a Private Function, which is a kind of um, repressive romantic drama about um, Michael Palin um, and Richard Griffiths, who's also in With Nell and I, struggling to hide a pig. Uh, no, from um, the, there's, there's a royal um, dinner going on, and uh, obviously they're still rationing, so there's this pig that's escaped and it ends up in the back of their flat. And Mona Lisa, for which Bob Hoskins was Oscar-nominated. So they, they have this good reputation, also being Nuns on the Run, which is slightly more ropey, but yeah. equally fun. <laughs> um, it's the debut film from uh, Bruce Robinson, who was best known before this as a screenwriter. He was Oscar-nominated for writing The Killing Fields, the Roland Joffé film, which is you know, a very good, interesting war film about you know, Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge and journalism and so forth. After this, he kind of made a couple of other films like, uh, called How to Get Ahead in Advertising and Jennifer Eight, neither of which were successful, and he, he kind of gave up directing for a long time, although he has made a new film since called The Rum Diary with Johnny Depp, which is an adaptation of a Hunter Thompson novel, but so, anyway... A bit of a plot summary before we uh, get into the meat and drink. Um, it's a semi-autobiographical story about two uh, resting actors, resting being shorthand for unemployed and <laughs> unemployable. Uh, they're actors living in a Camden flat, uh, paid by Paul McGann, who is I, and uh, Richard E. Grant, who is Withnail, or Withnull depending on how you want to pronounce it. They're basically hanging around in London, being actors, waiting for their career to take off. And in that flat, that flat is the worst flat I've ever yes, seen in my it, life. <laughs> it, it makes the house in The Young Ones look like Buckingham Palace. Yes, it like it's that. a disgusting house. Sorry. Yeah, um, <laughs> like I say, it's semi-autobiographical so uh, I in this is uh, Bruce Robinson, or based on Bruce Robinson, and Withnell is apparently based on an actor called Vivian McCarroll who lived with Robinson for a long time and uh, uh, died quite young of throat cancer which he attributes to imbibing lighter fluid which will, you know, be significant when we come onto to the actual plot of the film. So they live in a squalid flat, uh, slagging off understudies and basically slowly drinking themselves to death um they decide that no because the flat's in such a state that they need to go on holiday so uh with rings up his uh, uncle monty played by richard griffiths who lives in the countryside and they basically drive off and stay in a, a, a cottage for a week and all manner of things go awry yeah nothing goes right <laughs> yes <laughs> and everything goes wrong um now here's the thing there is it's often the case with semi-autobiographical films that they become completely self-absorbed to the point of which it, they do consist of a filmmaker basically advertising how brilliant their lives are. And a classic comparison but we with um a film I've talked about a couple of times on here called The Squid and the Whale. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Um, Noah Baumbach's film which uh, about basically his uh, parents, both of whom are writers, getting divorced in the mid-1980s. And it's a film which basically says, look, all these kind of artists and writers sitting around moaning about how hard in my life is and how philistine most people are. And it's like, isn't this interesting? And you just go, no. <laughs> Sorry, I don't care. You're repulsive people and stop being so horrible to women. Um... But the first big success of With Nell and I is that it manages to be a film about actors and acting without being any way kind of pretentious or self-important. You've got this wonderful balance of, on the one hand, these very flowery conversations with this gritty, almost kitchen sink realism. I mean, so on the one hand, you've got Uncle Monty's character kind of reciting from literature. I think at one point he refers to uh, flowers as prostitutes for the bees. Yeah. And on the other hand, you have, you know, the scenes of Whitnell in this squalid flat demanding to have some booze. I mean, <laughs> he can't find any. He downs lighter fluid. I was watching that scene again recently, and there's that great line where he, he downs the lighter fluid, which when they did it was vinegar, for reasons that will become clear. Obviously, you couldn't really drink lighter fluid, and we don't... Don't try da- that at home. No, <laughs> definitely don't try that at home. You will go blind. Um, but, uh, when they there's a scene after that where um after Withnell is down the lighter fluid he goes to iron says have we got more what's in your toolbox you've got antifreeze (laughs) and i just says completely deadpan you know you shouldn't mix your drinks (laughs) (laughs) so you have these characters which are kind of flamboyant obnoxious and in the case of Withnell, incredibly snobbish but they're also kind of lovable and oddball and they're it's a very kind of insightful portrait of lives of people who are basically living nine-tenths of the time, completely on the skids. Yes. Because you 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 said you didn't quite get a handle on the characters the first time round, and then you watched it again and thought, yeah, I get it now. Yeah, the first time round, uh, the character, M- Uncle Monty, comes across as a bit of a... He's, he just seems
1: horrendous. You just think, oh, he's just an absolute villain, and you just think... He kind of, I don't know, it kind of just took the, took us away from... I, I wanted to see more of the, the two characters with me alive together, more of their banter, but... Um, Watching it a certain time round, yeah, I, I kind of saw his dynamic in, in the picture and things like that, but there's there's a few... The, the, there's some really, really hilarious scenes, but we can't really quote them. No. Like when they go to the cake, the cake shop. Yeah. Cake shop. But uh, just 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 watch it's, it, and you'll see when they get the cake shop, and you just go... Yeah, awesome. and I'm
0: just looking at the cover of it now because we've got this in the studio. It's a 15 certificate, and yet if you go on... Um, YouTube other websites are available and type in with Nell and I swear is an awful lot of swearing in the film including two uses of the C word. Yes, so I don't know maybe it was originally in an 18 and they the BBFC have since downgraded it so Another couple of um, interesting tidbits before we get into it. This is one of many films to have its reputation enshrined in a drinking game, which is kind of when you know a film's arrived as a cult classic. Yeah, you know that every generation of students will watch it regardless. Yes, mm-hmm. um, um, there are um, obviously a few other drinking games. Oh, there's the Evil Dead 2 drinking game, which is where you have a drink every time ash gets hit on the head. So if you want to get drunk very quickly, that's the one to play. <laughs> not that we're condoning this. We should say, no, we don't condone you smashing your head out with alcohol and all the rest of it. No, you can play these games At least not no definitely not um i dare say a couple of people listening are actually hung over and it doesn't work hair of the dog is no it works for some people but not everyone there's also um the ice cold and alex drinking game ice cold and alex the um the 1950s film with john mills and anthony quayle basically um John Mills is a, an English sergeant. and they basically have to get this medical lorry all the way to Alexandria and it ends with them having a, an, an ice-cold drink of lager before one of them gets arrested and taken off because he's a, a deserter from South Africa. And the ice-cold and Alex drinking game is where you turn up all the he- heating, you shut the windows, you have the hottest curry you can manage, you start the film and you are not allowed to drink until John Mills necks his lager in one. <laughs> I haven't tried it, but it is an endurance test, you no. uh, So the Withnell and I drinking game is every time Withnell drinks on screen, you have to drink the exact same thing. And I, I made a list of what this works out to, not from watching the film, I got this from a website. It works out to, and again, if, if you're listening, don't try this at home. Nine and a half glasses of red wine, one pint of cider, two and a half shots of gin, six glasses of sherry, 13 whiskeys, half a pint of ale, and one shot of lighter food, which is substituted in the drinking game for either rum or a Brazilian liqueur called cachaca. But when they filmed it, the ironic thing was that Richard E. Grant wasn't as a teetotaler. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get the part in the first place? So what they had to do is Bruce Roberts basically took him out on the town the night before to get him drunk on alcohol. No, obviously alcohol, but specifically on vodka. So he'd be literally hung over is that your phone yeah sorry that's a totally unprofessional I <laughs> yeah so they got, him, they got him drunk for the only time in his life and then in the light of fluid bottle that with now drinks on is vinegar so when you see richard e grant going ah! on the floor that is him literally choking because it's so strong
1: yes yeah, so it probably would kill him. and i would just like to say an interest of balance you're telling people not to drink it but we have to be balanced and i say go for it <laughs> someone out there wants to attempt your- that list of what Daniel just read out I think you just may as well put nine 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 in your phone now and leave your finger above the call button. Yes, but then, no and then pl- go for it. No
0: pun <laughs> intended, but on your own head be it. And don't buy lighter fluid and drink it because that's that's not clever. It's just ridiculous. You can buy cider; it's cheaper. <laughs> very so. good <laughs> so um if we can get this away from condoning people to basically drink their brains out um that would be wise it's <laughs> although the film is a comedy and it is a really hilarious comedy with great moments i mean which was your favorite moment in the film uh we,
1: the, the the cake shop thing and where the bit where the with nail is well we're discussing where he's trying to shoot, well, he's trying to fishing with a shotgun yes. <laughs> That, that kind of says it all, really.
0: <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, so there's the scene in which they go fishing and try and blast r- fish out of the river with a double-barreled shotgun. There's the scene you, you were talking about where they go, they go drunk into a cake shop and uh, order the finest wines in all humanity. We want them here, we want them now. And with no, it goes on ranting about, what do you want? Cake. Lots and lots of cake. That was the first time where the character of I became really
1: obnoxious, <laughs> kind of just joined them and just like went with it. Normally he's like the kind of a moral compass for the thing, but now he's, he just went with it, and that's just sort of added to it for me. <laughs> yeah, I think but that's
0: because they were making fun of all the stuffy old people in, mm. in there, because it is a 60s, well, it's set in the 60s at any rate, which we'll come on to uh, in a little while. But, uh, but yeah, it's that scene where they go into the cake shop to have you know, tea and cake while they're waiting for Monty to pick them up, and when the proprietor gets annoyed, they pretend to be multi-millionaires and say, we'll buy this place and fire you straight away. <laughs> can't help <laughs> laughing at that there is also the great um scene in the last 15 minutes where i wakes up in the back of their car which is a mark ii jag uh, while Jimi hendrix all the all on the watchtower is playing and withnell is drunk at the wheel <laughs> steering his way up the m25 which of course didn't exist then and we'll come on to that basically saying what are you doing i'm making time i'm going to get us back so we can sign on <laughs> so although there are very kind of outright comedy moments and you would be very hard pushed not to laugh at least once in Withnell and i The film is very tragicomic in the sense that it's mainly about the kind of the end of an era, the sort of the passing of a way of life and a realisation that in order to survive, you have to put your old ways behind you, even if it means abandoning your friends. And the central um, thing of the film is that in the end, with Nell and I split up, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, So you have that kind of conveyed in three ways. Firstly is you have the very gritty, low budget and visuals. I mean, it's it's not remarkable direction by any means, but you have... um, the actor's face is kind of very grimy and dimly lit. You have wallpaper coming off the walls. You have damp and musty rooms like the squalid pub where there's no newspaper all over the windows. I mean, if you um, remember the scene in Get Carter very early on where you uh, see the backs of the terraced houses stretching off into the mist with the factory in the background. And it is that same kind of sense of this is a society which is on the brink or which is decayed and full of malaise and is actually on the brink of dying. Mm-hmm. And there's that same sense of this lifestyle is completely unsustainable and how long is it going to take you to get away from this and how long, you know, to snap out of it, basically. The second thing is that it's setting at the end of the 60s and one of the film's problems, which you wanted to pick up on, is the uh, various anachronisms that uh, crop up in it. How do you mean...? Well, the various because um, it's set in 1969, but there are various things that appear on camera which Ye- don't, yeah, f- yeah which yeah. wouldn't have been around then.
1: Yeah, there's well, it's, it's it's very minor things. You'd have to really pause the, the DVD and get in, let it bother you. But it was just something I, I saw on a TV program that the when they're driving down the road, there's loads of like modern day cars passing them on the road, and like mm-hmm. you say, the, the motor which they're driving on doesn't actually exist and yes. stuff like that. So little minor thing, but I, I think you can kind of shut your brain off to them. You'd have to be really really picky. Yes. It's the sort of person who goes, oh, well, that, that Klingon phrase wasn't the right Klingon phrase. You'd have to be one of those sorts of person to really let that bother you. Yes,
0: and suffice to say we're not, although yeah. we, we like to be precise, we're not, um, anal about that sort of thing. Um, so you have it said at the end of the sixties and there is that, um, much quoted, I mean, Wisdom is an incredibly quotable film in its own right, but there is that particularly quotable scene where they're talking to the drug dealer who lives in, I think, in the flat next door to them, um, where they're tripping out and he's saying, you know, they're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. No, the the uh, I think the line is, uh, the greatest gen- decade in the history of mankind is over and we failed to paint it black. So you've got to mm. the, basically the characters have got to the point in the 1960s when... Um, the whole lifestyle of rebellion and recreational drug-taking, which, again, we don't condone, it no longer rings true as a means of liberation, and it taps into the whole idea of 60s culture, on the one hand, being absorbed by the mainstream, and on the other hand, people turning to drugs, not to broaden their mind, but to basically escape from how terrible their lives are. I mean, there's a comparison there with um, an Antonioni film called Zabriskie Point, which kind of takes a look at that from from an American point of view. But the third way in which the kind of of end-of-the-era... Um, theme is conveyed and the most important way is through the characters i mean we talked a little bit about uncle monty a little bit earlier Mm -hmm. and you were saying that you were a bit put off by the fact that he was something of a sexual predator
1: yeah there's a about towards the two-thirds of the way through the film he turns his attention to I, and he just basically wants to have uh, his way with reenact deliverance shall we say (laughs) We, have, we had to get the reference in, didn't we? He, yeah. He wants, he wants to do a bit of deliverance with him, and but there aren't any banjos in the film. No, they're just um, drunk with a shotgun, and um, <laughs> there's, it's just you just kind of watch it and you go, oh, he's really. I feel uncomfortable watching. It's just really because he just pursues him, and he, it's it's kind of like little bits of like a horror film where they, like they're walking around this dark cottage, and then. He locks the. I knocks the door and turns back, and Uncle Monty's there in his face, and you're like, <gasps> and like, it's just, just yes. a little bit, little bit troubling. But as I say, watching it certain time, you kind of get the reason he was there, and he was, he was the, the sort of thing that just made the film move along, otherwise I I would imagine them two probably would have drunk themselves into oblivion in that cottage.
0: Yes, quite possibly (laughs) Um, because the the character of Uncle Monty from what I've read about the film is based upon um, the film director Franco Zeffirelli who directed uh, Bruce Robinson when he was an actor in uh, he he played uh, Ben Volio in his version of Romeo and Juliet. I mean Zeffirelli's best known for um, the TV series Jesus of Nazareth with Robert Powell, Mm -hmm. which is often shown on television around Easter, as you would because it's about the death and resurrection (laughs) of Christ. Jesus time. (laughs) yes so you have this character who does make sexual advances on robinson in the same way that um zeffirelli did allegedly obviously we have to be careful what we say but there's also other suggestions of that kind of encroachment like the the the, the scariest scene for me is where um i is urinating in the pub and he sees the graffiti about uh, no well shall we say some kind of um homosexual activity which we can't repeat on the air because it involves swearing and i mean but the thing about monty's character is he's very much this is what with could turn into if he doesn't change this sort of self-pitying self-hating has-been who basically survives by reliving past glories which in the end didn't really exist and over the course of the film, you have both Withnell's sort of hedonistic optimism that, you know, I'm going to get a job, it'll be fine. Yeah. Um, and I's kind of self-delusion of, well, maybe he'll grow out of this. Both of those are completely eroded. And the film ends, and, you know, if you don't want to know the end of Withnell and I, I just turn down for 30 seconds. It, it was 24 years ago, I think. <laughs> yes, but, you know, some people still get a bit tetchy about that sort of thing. Um... The film ends with I basically moving to get a TV job in Manchester uh, after they spent the whole film slagging off Manchester. There's a scene early on where um, Withnell hangs up in a phone box and I says, what happened? said, my agent wanted me to understudy for, for Constance in the seagull. I mean, how dare he? <laughs> so there's that sort of thing. So you have I basically saying, look, I'm moving on. You need to get your life in shape and I can't help you anymore. And then the film... Has Withnell standing alone in the rain, swigging from a bottle of red wine, reciting the What Piece of Work Is a Man speech from Hamlet. You know, basically saying, you know, what is this quintessence of dust? And it's really heartbreaking. (laughs) You do get the sense of, well, what's going to happen to this man? Is he going to drink himself to death? Is something going to happen to him? Is, Uncle, is he going to live with Uncle Monty? What's what's going to go on? But better than the original ending. <laughs> yes, the original ending, which they filmed but I think edited out, was um, with now going back to the flat, pouring the, remo- the remnants of that wine into a shotgun, drinking from the barrel, and then pulling the trigger, which just, it's... It, it's a dark enough ending but it just wouldn't have gelled with the message in the rest of the film because it is about being you know, yeah, the ambiguous end of an era yeah it would have overshadowed completely everything that went before and it,
1: yeah it wouldn't have been a cool classic if people went oh and you remember that film that was funny until the end <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes well there's a lot of fun to say about that <laughs> so in terms of the performances just to kind of round this off because we've only got 20 minutes left and we need to get fewer and, and remember a few reviews i think it's the best thing richard e grant has ever done i mean i like him in gosford park i like him in the scarlet Pimpernel tv series and it, but he is a really full-on actor who cranks everything up to 11 in this and it's odd that his career has become much more sort of about Restrained character roles like the butler in Gosford Park Mm -hmm. where it's all very straight-laced But in this he is just allowed to kind of rip loose and to do all the funny stuff And that's the thing he's a a bit like Jeff Golden when we discussed a few weeks ago He should be he should be on more things
1: Yes, he has, just, he has a very. If you, I don't know, at the right time, he has a very cinematic face. If that makes sense, he has, yes, he does. He has a massive head, <laughs> a, a bit like Clive Owen. They both have huge heads, and it works well on the big screen. Yes. It's and just he, really expressive, and yeah. it's
0: the voice as well. Because Richardie Grant, for whatever reason, always sounds like he's kind of whispering aggressively. And you're wondering what's going on, and what he'd be like if he actually got round to shouting. I also think it's Paul McCann's best performance. I mean, he's, I like him in um, that really underrated turn he did in the Doctor Who TV movie, which is one of the darker portrayals of Doctor Who, you know, after Sylvester McCoy, mm-hmm. you needed to be dark. And he also turns up very briefly as one of the convicts in Alien 3, which is a very underrated science fiction film. So, like I say, there are flaws with it. I mean, it is anachronistic to some extent. Also, the middle section when, which does con- is repetitive, I mean, it does consist of, you know, let's meet a local and then have lunch let's meet a local and then have tea let's <laughs> make a local and then get drunk and you do think okay where's this going come on click on and get it but it is consummate viewing for anyone interested in British cinema particularly low budget British cinema and I really hope that when Robinson's new film The Rum Diary comes out it does get a wide enough release because he is a very interesting filmmaker yeah sounds good Hard Radio
1: <laughs> right onto the new releases then We've been through the top ten, we've been through the cult film week, the cult film as well, I, I think, it's doing the rounds on film four. So, Quite possibly. So keep your, keep your eye open that on, on your, your Sky and generic TV planners. So, yeah, keep your eyes open for that. Right,
0: on to this week's new releases, what, what we want to start with? Uh, shall we uh, start with uh, Tangled, which is the new Disney 3D animation?
1: This is the one that's been advertised everywhere. If you close
0: your eyes, it's advertised on the inside of your eyelids. <laughs> it's one of those types <laughs> <Yes>. of films. <laughs> so it's the new Disney Digimation-based Quite closely, actually, on... Well, apparently, on the Grimm's fairy tale of Rapunzel, you know, her with the hair locked in the tower. Um, so, you have Rapunzel played by Mandy Moore. The cast also includes uh, Zachary Levy, who, hell, he. Uh, Ron Perlman as the Stabbington Brothers, which I think is a brilliant <laughs> title of the character. And there is a cameo performance by Richard Keel, who, of course, is Jaws in the James Bond films. He plays a villain called Vladimir. <laughs> and, yeah. Also, have you seen um, Happy Gilmore? The Adam I Sandler film. Have, yes. In which he turns up at the end, so yes. it's... A, <laughs> Is this your ball? Land it on my foot. <laughs> <laughs> and there's that scene of him you know, running in slow motion. Yeah, he's a really interesting actor. Um, so the, the film has had a very strange history. I mean, it was originally called Unbraided. Then it changed halfway through its production to Rapunzel. Then they did some market research um, to see, you know, the demographic breakdown of people who went to see the previous Disney film, The Princess and the Frog, and found basically not enough young boys were going. So they thought, well, let's change it to Tangled so we can have a kind of less gender-specific audience. And it does very much look like a film which has been sort of market-tested in the same way as um, Pixar's Ratatouille did. Did you get the sense with that? Did you see Ratatouille? Yes,
1: yeah, all that. I really
0: liked that film. It's okay, but it, it does very much look like a film in which there's not, they deliberately took out any stuff that was slightly edgy or innocuous. Now, there's nothing like the kind of spark of um, WALL-E or Up to some extent mm. in that film. I mean, I, I don't think Brad Bird's a great director, but, you know, it's okay. The film is also notable for the fact that it is the most expensive animated film ever made. It has a budget of, well, let's put this in comparison. Batman Begins, which is a big, romping blockbuster, had a, a, a budget of about $140 million, not including marketing. This has a budget of $260 million. That is bonkers. That it is, is completely... I mean, that's almost Avatar territory. Yeah, you can think, I, I quite fancy a job at Disney. That's so much they get that, that's in the anime. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what I've read up about this, and that basically, Disney have said that basically because it, the reason it costs so much is that they had to spend a lot more money redesigning all the CGI to make the hair look realistic. They had to kind of invent new rendering programs to make it float accurately on water. Ah, oh, so
1: to uh, build a new technology, fair enough, but still.
0: Yeah, but, the, no, <laughs> y- I mean, the, but that's similar to, like, no, you know, them saying in in the, uh, the Green Hornet, you know, it was great when we had the 3D at the end of principal photography because we could kind of back design all the shots, like, no, don't buy it, sorry, no. So I don't buy, not sure I buy that. The other thing that's notable about Tangle is that Quentin Tarantino has said it's one of his favourite films of the year, which kind of, Tells you all you need
1: to know. Really, he's obviously been housebound for a lot of the and hasn't been out to see a lot of things. Yes, it's no,
0: m- maybe you know, Some of his critics got his way and basically locked him in his house after Inglorious, <coughs> and you no, know, we're not letting you out until you make a proper film. You know, here's a lot of low budget Disney stuff. Um, This obviously isn't low budget. I think no. In the end, Tangle is perfectly fine. I mean, it does look sort of post Shrek, and the animation is a, is is. It's bright and cheery and sort of frothy in a way that does look like it's going to age as well as the hand-drawn stuff. But it's probably okay, and and as films with female role models go, it's one of the better ones. I'm
1: pleased you mentioned Shrek, because that's after watching the trailer and reading, but I just thought it's disney's attempt at shrek that's what it that's what it struck me which of
0: course is. course is odd because the whole well, certainly the whole original point of shrek the first two ones was taking the rip out of disney clichés mm-hmm. so it's interesting that sort of come full circle but like i say it's perfectly fine it's not it's not going to date well as something like beauty and the beast but it's perfectly fine is that, that'll be a pg one it's got to be it's it? a pg it might even be a u actually i'm not sure right um Shall we do, um, Beautiful and Hereafter together, because they are linked? Yeah, let's go for it. Which one do you want to start with? Let's start with Hereafter, the new Clint Eastwood film. Yeah, which is always good news. Um, new Clint Eastwood film starring Matt Damon, and we're both Matt Damon fans, as I think we've yes. discussed at some length. Have you I, seen Invictus yet? I watched it this week. It came through,
1: uh, my generic, uh, postal DVD rental yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Just for people who love film. Yes. Um... In, it it was really I, I thought it was awesome. Yeah, and didn't you? I, I, th- I, I, th- I, I don't know a lot of the rules of rugby. I know that you smash into each other and you kick the ball out of play and you move up the field, and that just seems bonkers from a football point of view. But that, leave that at one side. It. Game. <laughs> um, and it just, but it was just a really good. It was it was
0: a it was a brilliant film. But didn't Matt Damon do a great job of doing a South African accent? Oh, yeah,
1: much, much better than um, it didn't wasn't as distract. Have you seen Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio? Yes, her. it was a little bit distracting his accent, but Matt Damon just you just thought it is completely oh, seamless. He's Francois Peanut. That he's South and that's just the
0: way it is. Mm. But uh, It's a a very good performance. So you have in, so it's good to see the two of them working together. You have in this a series of intertwining stories about three characters who have life after death experiences. So Matt Damon plays um, a former psychic turned factory worker. Mm. Goodness (laughs) knows we love a lot of those. Uh, Cécile de France plays a French TV journalist who survives a tsunami which happens at the very beginning of the film so we're not giving that away. And you have twin boys played by Frankie and George McLaren one of whom dies in a car crash and he's trying to get in contact with his dead brother now glancing at the cast and crew list, it does look like a dream lineup in the sense that you have eastwood and matt damon working together again it's also got a script by peter morgan who wrote frost nixon Mm -hmm. and is a very good screenwriter and he's actually written the new version of tinker taylor soldier spy which is coming out later this year so all the omens look good it could be that it's one of those films in which It has so much going for it that it's a massive letdown, and it could easily be Eastwood's equivalent of uh, The Lovely Bones, the Peter Jackson film, in the sense that it is very difficult to put heaven or the afterlife on screen without just being cloying and sentimental. I mean, we discussed Lovely Bones briefly, I think there are lots of things wrong with that film, and it is manipulative, but I still sort of admire Jackson for trying it, even Mm -hmm. if it did effectively amount to you know, making up a CGI fantasy world as he went along, which wasn't really anything like heaven at all. But then again, that's a rather stupid comment, because I don't know what heaven's like either. <laughs> um, it's probably worth seeing as a drama piece, and I do think anything with Matt Damon in is interesting, even if it's something r- comparatively dull like The Good Shepherd. Yeah. But compared to Beautiful, which is a film which, um, you know, tackles a similar area, it is probably the better treatment of the two. And the reason for that is that Beautiful is directed by uh, Alejandro Gonzalez in Yaratu who started out his career, you know, he's a, a Spanish or Mexican director, started out his career with a film called Morris Peros. Have you seen that? No. Nope. Um translates loosely as Love is Terrible because we can't say that word on air um, which is about these three kind of uh, rivalling love stories coming together in a car crash a really kind of full-on exploitation film but very interesting then he got a bit full of himself with a film called 21 Grams which is no a film about no, what is the weight of the human soul mm-hmm. and th- his most recent film before this was a film called Babel which was just complete wallowing self-pitying I, w- I, would, I would class that as unwatchable I,
1: I try to get into it and it's, just it's like,
0: horrible isn't
1: it just it is. thought there's another two hours of this later I thought no abandon yeah abandon this over all my life yeah
0: <laughs> it, it is like herding cats on screen in the sense that it doesn't really work so you have a central character in this um beautiful which is spelled b-i-u-tiful in is how Ventura, it, i would say it <laughs> <laughs> <It's> quite possibly <laughs> apparently that's how it's spelled in, in a certain dialect of spanish but it's like the pursuit of happiness mm. in the sense that it's a deliberately quirky title so you have Javier Bardem, who has been Oscar-nominated for this, and, of course, he won the Best Supporting Actor uh, three years ago for No Country of Old Men. Yes. And um, he plays a seedy underground character whose death is approaching, and he is struggling to kind of atone for what he has done and reconcile with his friends and family. And it's the old inearity device of kind of intertwining uh, strands which come together through ever more contrived ways. I mean, it, he's kind of ditched the, people who, the person whom he wrote Babel with, which is a good start. But if you've seen the trailer for this, I actually saw it um, while I was watching Black Swan. It's that same kind of thing of, I'm saying something in voiceover, and it's really profound and really insightful, and it will be beautiful, and I just go... <clears throat> because it's dull and ponderous, and it is... I mean, it, to compare the two, I mean, hereafter, Clint Eastwood, a very nuts-and-bolts workman-like director who's got a very straightforward matter-of-fact attitude towards the story he's telling, and as a result, might do a decent job of depicting the afterlife as something very kind of earth Trodden and worldly worn. In the two, who's interested in metaphysics and I like metaphysical films, mm-hmm. but essentially it's just sort of this kind of airy fairy and this is very interesting because you know in the end we're a bit like this and I just go, come on, just discipline, make it under 90 minutes and go back to making another film as good as Amoris Peros. Yeah, this, this this clocks in at over about two hours thirty, doesn't it? So it's it's a yeah. long shank. Yeah, and it's it's in um, it's his first Spanish language film since Amoris Perros, so um. Yeah. Go, I mean, I don't have any problem with people, you know, watching foreign language films at all. I mean, uh, the whole argument that people can't read subtitles is nonsense, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can read title cards, you can read subtitles. But it is a long, hard slog, and I think Hereafter is less than two hours. So go and see that, because Clint Eastwood deserves to make money, even when he's, um, you know, dabbling in stuff, which isn't exactly his metier. Yeah, because it'll just encourage him to make more brilliant stuff. Yeah. yeah, and he might work with Matt Damon again, and they might produce a masterpiece. Who knows? He might make some sort of Western End. That'll be awesome. Well, Matt Damon's just done through grit, so The Omens might be good. Uh, yes, Matt Damon versus Clint
1: Eastwood in a Western. He's <laughs> still unforgiven. <laughs> <laughs> I'd better say that. <laughs> yeah, Or um, the Bourne unforgiven, which is where they're going next. True. Well, apparently the fourth Born, which is a mistake, I think, leave it at three, yes. uh, won't star Jason Bourne. No. The character of Jason Bourne isn't needed for it. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Seems bonkers, but... Yes, the... Identity. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm looking forward to seeing future Indiana Jones films, not starring Indiana Jones, but starring
0: Mutt. <laughs> <laughs> You're just saying, no. Just stop, but yeah, yeah. You know. but getting sidetracked. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, I could make the Marshall Duchamp shot about um, our mutt, but well, I'll, well, that's a bit too esoteric for this time of the morning. Um, shall we do the mechanic? Because we'll leave How Do You Know for last. Uh,
1: yes, um, the mechanic. It is, and it'll all be marked on your calendars is the new Jason Statham film. Jason Statham. Yeah, and it says it's follow up. Uh, this is this first film since the Expendables, and he's just going around shooting people, killing people, <laughs> kicking people's heads in, and it's it, it's basically what it is <laughs> kind of sums it up if you've seen the transporter uh, one two and three all them sort of films you know what you're going to get the only the f- thing which made me smile was watching a donald southern interview about it one You said it goes when at my age i get p- played to to die in films because i'm of that age where people go oh well he won't last the full film and then you start on about how this was a really hard-hitting drama about the list between sons and fathers and sons and fathers and their um, uh, surrogate sons and stuff like that. and you think No, it's not. It's Jason Statham. Yes. (laughs) He's going to kick that guy's head in,
0: get off with that girl, and then shoot everyone at the end. And take his shirt off. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's what he does. I mean, there's a big argument that Jason Statham is some kind of homoerotic idol in the same way as all those sword and sandals epics are about watching men with men. But that's a different story. I mean, this is nominally a remake of the 1972 thriller uh, directed by Michael Winner starring Charles Bronson. And there is an argument that that film, which is about... a a hitman who's called the mechanic because he's so kind of precise and refined and the whole plot point is he has to kill his boss and it's it's basically a very similar plot to what the american is mm-hmm. written in the last year that's a much better film because Michael Winner couldn't direct for Toffee. I mean, there is an argument that the original film is, exi- is an existential parable in the sense that it's about people coming to terms with demons, but the, the remake clearly isn't interested in any of that, and it is essentially playing to the crank crowd and the transporter crowd. There was a wonderful quote from uh, Roger Ebert saying that uh, audiences have been drilled to accept noise and movement as entertainment. It is done so well one almost forgets to ask why it has been done at all. <laughs> and I think that sort of sums up. So if you're a fan of Transporter, then fine. Fine. It's 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 not terrible. It's just not terribly interesting or original. Have you seen Transporter 3? Have you seen any of the Transporters? I've seen bits of Transporter 3. Have you seen a bit where the woman
1: makes some strip and you say, <laughs> Yes, I have. What, what, what,
0: what is this? <laughs> <But> that, <going? laughs> that's playing exactly to
1: its target audience. It's bonkers. Yeah, absolutely bonkers. But uh, never mind. We're getting sidetracked. We've got time to
0: squeeze in another film, I think. How Do You Know? Which is the new romantic comedy from James L. Brooks, who you probably know most as one of the producers on The Simpsons. Yes, I'll say the name uh, rings a bell from appearing in a little yellow and <laughs> yes, next that. to sam yeah. simon and just below matt graining um so but he's also a fairly accomplished film director i mean he made broadcast news which uh, you know good late 80s satire of um news corporation and so forth also made terms of endearment and as good as it gets both of which won oscars for jack nicholson one mm-hmm. for best supporting actor one for best actor um i think anyway so you have In this film, a love triangle between dropped softball player Reese Witherspoon, that's softball player Reese Witherspoon, who apparently is kicked off the team because she's past 30. baseball player Owen Wilson, that's baseball player Owen Wilson, and executive under threat Paul Rudd, who was most recently in Dinner for Schmucks. Yeah. And you have Jack Nicholson cropping up, Jack Nicholson doing one of his, I can't talk anymore because I'm so old, performances. I think the one word after you've that is miscast. Every <laughs> yes. single one them, miscast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, I mean, Brooks has been off the ball for ages. I mean, look, both of his Oscar-winning films, Terms of Endearment and Good As It Gets, are massively overrated. Terms of endearment especially which is just it's frothy like a cappuccino but it doesn't have anything going for it mm-hmm. um and also you look at the declining form of the simpsons since 2000 i mean i i've stopped watching it a few yeah. years ago now but it, it does it has I'll, gone i'll, yeah, much I'll, more I'll occasionally
1: catch it on channel four uh, when i get in from work and you think it's 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 not funny there's bits of it you make smile but it's it's kind of just trend water which is a shame yes you kind of think maybe it's just pull the plug and go on a high or something but it's such a behemoth in all worldwide. I don't think they can pull the plug on it, really. Do you think they should have ended it after the Simpsons movie? Uh, no, because I wasn't really a fan of the Simpsons movie. I thought it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think it was a fitting ending. No, I think it was, a, the Simpsons
0: movie's okay. I mean, it's not particularly cinematic, but it's quite funny. Mm. Yeah,
1: anyways, It's good. Yeah, it's yeah. mm-hmm. So uh,
0: the interesting thing about this, we talked about Tangled having a massive undeserved budget of 260 million. This has had a budget of 120 million which is astronomical for what is essentially a rom-com. Is, is, that, is that like exploding robots at all, or is that...? Not, that, it's not according to the trailer, Then they might just have edited that bit out. And do you know how much it's taken in America so far? Twelve pence. <laughs> Thirty million. <laughs> okay. So it's made less than a quarter of its budget, and that budget, of course, doesn't include advertising, and it's been advertised absolutely everywhere, and if you go onto the Internet Movie Database, it's as the backdrop. Yeah. So it's not for want of trying but it's it's just it's just basically a bunch of rich successful people standing around enjoying each other's company and the check and playing bad versions of themselves and jack nicholson i mean i was watching the passenger again a couple of nights ago in which he's really good and you just think what was the point in which you stopped acting and started playing yourself and no you don't you only make a film every three or four years now so why did you choose this one yeah it's it's crazy It's a bit of a shame as well It's a, it's a bit like The Robert De Niro thing You just go Oh you, we know you better <laughs> Yeah so my advice would be I mean if you want A romantic comedy Go and watch Morning Glory If you want to see A good Jack Nicholson performance Go and watch Chinatown again Which is still His finest performance And it's an absolutely Terrific film It's a it's a shame Because
1: Paul Rudd I do I'm, I'm a fan of Paul Rudd I think he, he's he got Potential in him If but he's not With stuff like this He's not been given The right material Owen Wilson is what he is He's just He's always going to be The slacker sort of person Yeah I mean sometimes He parodies it Which is fine but. Mm no Reese Witherspoon with a spoon is brilliant but what is she doing? This is the stuff she was doing late round about Legally Blonde period. It's just like, it's a bit of a step back. Mm. It's a bit of a shame that she, say, people, I suppose, the almighty dollar will talk. That's probably why it for yeah. 120 million speech salary. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's quite possibly. I mean, there was that quote about her which said that, um, Reese Witherspoon's career has been much the same path as Halle Berry's, of win an Oscar and then do nothing but bad stuff. Because I think the last time I checked, Halle Berry's new product was going to be a comedy called Napoli Ever After. And oh, you just so think, you deserve so much better. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) But we'll come to that anyway. So, um, Film of the Week is probably Hereafter, although it isn't, um, a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, and go in, if it it might well turn out to be Clint Eastwood's equivalent of The Lovely Bones, but, you know, go in with middling expectations and you might have a good time. Sounds good. Right, uh, I think I'm going to wrap up now. Um, We should just mention next week's cult film. Yes. Um, Have you decided on it? (laughs) Yes, um, we shall do Get Carter. Good north east choice. Good northeast choice and, and you can buy
1: um I, I know well, may as well talk up to the news now. <laughs> Have you got fifty seconds more on you? <sighs> you twisted mine. <laughs> So you, can, uh, you can buy parts of the car park which they demolished on
0: an auction site, probably eBay. If Others if if, are available. If, if you want to get yourself <laughs> a slice of history, um, you can do. Yeah, it. there is also um, Mike Hodges, who directed Get Carter, is there is a season of his work screening at the Tyneside Cinema, including recut versions of some of his Hollywood films, including The Terminal Man, which is very underrated. Uh, you can't get tickets for the special Get Carter screening, which is going on in early March, but all the other ones um, are. It's, it's four years old, tickets. isn't it now? It's 40 years old in March. And so if that but makes there, anyone feel old. <laughs> but there are tickets available for uh, location tours, which are being held by the Tynesad around the same time, so go on the Tynesad website and uh, check those out, because Get is a really great film.
1: Sounds good. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week at 9 o'clock. Thanks. See you then. Bye.